Welcome to the Boston College Magazine podcast. I'm John Wolfson, the editor of Boston College Magazine, and I'm joined as always by our podcast producer, Paul Dagnello. It's been two months since George Floyd was killed by a police officer in Minneapolis. What's followed has been nothing short of a national reckoning around not just police brutality and systemic racism, but of how race affects everything in our country, from financial security and educational attainment to health and emotional wellness. For many white people, though, race can be a synonym for people of color. Whites often fail to think of themselves in racial terms to recognize that they, too, are part of the racial spectrum. This oversight is a research specialty of Janet Helms, the Augustus Long Professor at BC's Lynch School of Education and Human Development. Helms, who is also the director of BC's Institute for the Study and Promotion of Race and Culture, is the author of a number of books, including A Race is a Nice Thing to Have, a guide to being a white person, or understanding the white persons in your life. She joins us today to discuss how, for white people, quote-unquote, not seeing color, or failing to recognize their own race, can inadvertently contribute to systemic racism. Welcome, Janet. Well, thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. Uh, there, Right now in our country, there is happily a lot of talk about race and racism. Uh, what's striking uh, to me is about how nearly all of the talk when we hear about race is about black, the black race or Latinos or other communities of color. Uh, very rarely do we hear any talk about a white race. And uh, one, one of the uh, central premises of your book, A Race is a Nice Thing to Have, is that in fact, white people do have a race, even if white people don't tend to think about it in that way. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about that? When you are in the position of privilege, you don't have to think about race. And mm -hmm. so for the most part, uh, white people are socialized in an environment where privilege is so automatic that they don't see that they have it. And because they don't see that they have it, they don't recognize the extent to which they're responsible for other people not having the same kinds of privileges in society that they have. And so uh, my book actually is about trying to help them become aware of the many ways in which uh, white people have internalized their whiteness and therefore participated in racism in the country without ever actually acknowledging that that's what they're doing. In fact, you'll often hear whites say, um, I don't see race. I'm not someone who sees race. I don't, I don't see color. Uh, but it sounds as though that's actually a part of this process that you're describing. Uh, it is. Actually, that's maybe about the first or second chapter of my book, uh, <laughs> that in fact, most people are oblivious to race. And so they know which box to check on an employment form, but they don't understand that when they check that box, that says something about themselves and the privileges that they have relative to other people in the society. So they just don't understand the social political implications of, quote unquote, having a race in our society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How does that work? Walk us through the connection um, of, of not frankly, seeing your own privilege or understanding your own privilege, and then that leading uh, to disadvantages for other, for other people and for other communities? Well, if you don't see your own privilege, then you also don't see other people's disadvantage. So, for example, in our current racial environment, lots of white people were not aware that uh, black people in particular, uh, for our conversation, were being oppressed by the police department. The reason they were not aware was that they were not really in much contact with black people. They're, the police don't harm white people for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so they were oblivious. And so therefore, they could not do anything to change the system that they were benefiting from. We see support around 60% approval for the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, including more than half of whites supporting the movement. Uh, but one of the things that your research, uh, as the areas of your research have focused on in uh, race and cultural factors in education, in testing, in health outcomes. So when it comes to systemic racism, which is what a lot of these protests and marches are about, it seems as though we're talking about a lot more than just the criminal justice system, as important as that is. Uh, yeah, I, I, I actually like to think about racism in the way the social psychologist uh, James Jones defines it. So thinking about it in, in three levels. One is individual, the extent to which we her, as individuals hold racist viewpoints or perspectives. Mm -hmm. uh, two is cultural, the extent to which if you are people in power, you decide what cultural products are valuable or not valuable. And then I actually prefer institutional to systemic because okay. you might have noticed now people are mixing up systemic and systematic. And so they end up not talking mm -hmm. about the same thing mm -hmm. for me or and for Jones. Institutional has to do with these social policies, laws and customs that direct how we behave towards uh, in our case, people of color. So police departments are a part of institutional racism. But there are many other things that are part of institutional racism as well. There's the educational system that favors uh, white people and disfavors people of color. Uh, there is uh, essentially anything that you can think about in our environment is structured now so that it favors white people while disregarding the people of color who are disadvantaged by that system. One of the things that has been striking for white people, as you pointed out a, a moment ago, uh, a lot of folks who are white simply didn't believe, had no idea because they hadn't had experiences of their own, that there were there was this sort of an outsized violence toward uh, black Americans in particular by the by police departments. What are some of the other ways, physical violence being a very obvious characteristic of that institutional racism, when it comes to education, when it comes to health care, um, what are some of the way, what are some of the symptoms or the consequences of that institutional racism that you're talking about? In the educational system? And or healthcare, yes. Um, well, in the educational system, um, an example I often use in some of my classes, which are typically predominantly white, mm -hmm. is you educate your future children in uh, school in the quote unquote inner city or the urban environment. And they say, no. And I say, well, why wouldn't you? And they will answer, well, because those are poor schools. They don't have resources. And so mm -hmm. I'm not sending my child to that school. That's institutional racism. If you would allow someone else's children to be educated in a poor educational system simply because they are people of color, while you are enjoying the advantage of sending your children to privileged schools, then that's institutional racism. So differential treatment based on racial characteristics is what I ask people to take a look at. If there's no legitimate reason to treat people poorly just because they're people of color, then you are enjoying and benefiting from institutional racism if you are a white person. So is that an example of institutional or personal racism, or is it a combination? Well, in some sense, you, you are doing it both at an institutional and at a personal level. Mm -hmm. um, I think that we actually only end institutional by recognizing the extent to which we engage in personal 
and then changing the system based on our own personal experiences of racism. And so, so that would be an example for the parent to think about how they can change the system so that not only their child is benefiting from a good education, but how do you change it so that children of color are also benefiting from a good education? So let's go to uh, to a race is a nice thing to have. Um, what are some strategies? What are some tools uh, that uh, white people can use? Uh, first is understanding uh, that a white person has a, a racial identity. But then what are some other ways that white people can can work to counter their own racism and institutional racism? Well, that's what my book is about. Yes. <laughs> I tell you the whole story, yes. and no one will buy my book. <laughs> okay. But I, I, I will say about it that I essentially lead people through the different stages of becoming a more uh, aware and a responsive uh, white person. And there are exercises that people can use. Um, I'd like to think that if you people go through the exercises, they re- will recognize themselves. They'll make a decision about whether they want to grow towards overcoming their own internalized racism. And they'll make a decision about what kind of white person they want to be. There are all sorts of answers to that Mm -hmm. question. So in some sense, I can't answer it for people, but I can give them a guideline or a map for at least thinking about those issues. Uh, I'd love to get your thoughts about... uh, this this moment that we're having in the country, um, it, it feels to many people, me myself included, a, a little bit of a surprise in that so many of us didn't necessarily see this coming and coming as quickly it did as it did. And I'm talking about the um, the, the protests that we've been seeing and the and the demands uh, for racial justice. So there have been protests all the time. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, we had the uh, dramatic. Uh, protest when Michael Brown was killed and we saw people being bombed and uh, tear gassed and so forth. Those were primarily people of color. So Mm -hmm. white people didn't pay any attention to that at all. I think what's different about what's happening now is that we were actually trapped in our houses by the uh, uh, virus, COVID-19. And so people had to watch George Floyd being killed. Mm-hmm. And so for people who had any moral conscience at all, they began to recognize that that was a wrong thing to happen. And so I think a lot of the protests happened because young people were watching. Uh, this is uh, kind of a different movement than has happened because there were young people who were white. There were young people who were Latinx and there were young people who were indigenous and Asian. So we had multi groups of uh, people not just white people, but multi-groups of people who said this is wrong and came out to show that they're, uh, they didn't like what was happening. Having said that, the most important part was that white young people came out to say they didn't like what was happening. Mm-hmm. It's actually, I think, white young people that other white people pay attention to. So a lot of change that happens will happen because the people who would be benefiting from white racism in the future the white young people are saying, that's not how we want to live. That's not how we want to benefit. So this is a radical change because for whatever reason, it's been able to entice most white young people to um, move away from racism. 
Of course, the buildup that we need is, is, is at an institutional level. And it starts, as you pointed out, uh, uh, quite powerfully a moment ago uh, with individuals recognizing their own behavior and their own part, uh, their own benefit and their own privilege in the current system. Uh, we've, we've seen some, some somewhat disappointing uh, legislative attempts at the federal level uh, in terms of bills that have been passed, uh, one in the House, which was perhaps a little better than one in the Senate. Um, do we have to recognize, do, do we expect that it's going to be a process before we have good, strong meaning and good, strong change at the institutional level? It might, it might not be the first bite at that apple that we take. Well, I, I haven't given you my my really background speech, which is about white heterosexual male privilege. All, all of our laws and policies are actually based on protecting white heterosexual male privilege. And racism, in a sense, is is one of the things that protects that privilege. So we won't get much change as long as we don't recognize that every change we make threatens that privilege in some way. Now, if you look at the laws and policies, the House, which is multiracial, mm-hmm. passed a policy which, in my opinion, makes a lot of sense given what we've witnessed. Mm-hmm. The Senate, which is primarily white heterosexual uh, males who are privileged, is not going to do that because it threatens their privilege. Uh, the president will not do that because it threatens his privilege. And so for us to get things changed, we have to recognize that that means that we also have to threaten that privilege. Things can't stay the way they are. We can't maintain a power system that protects one segment of the population but doesn't protect the rest of us. Do you think uh, that it will be a natural outgrowth of the moment we're having to explore other forms of institutional racism? The education we talked about, healthcare we talked about, uh, there are lots of other areas of that that we could get into. Uh, or is that going to require additional work and organizing? I, I think that every area is going to require additional work. I don't think we can solve the problem. We can't solve, for instance, the problem by just focusing on the police department. Focusing on the police department will help. But actually, it's intertwined with various things. If uh, we're focusing on the police department, then we also need to be focusing on the healthcare uh, aspects Mm -hmm. of uh, institutional racism because the police wouldn't be involved in treating people with mental illnesses if we were, in fact, working on procedures in healthcare that would do that for us instead. So I think it's a it's a untangling the various institutions and recognizing that when we do that, someone is not going to be happy with us because we're changing the status quo. We change we're changing something that has worked for white people quite well, and we're saying we think it will be better if we change it so that it works for everyone. Tell us how uh, optimistic you may be feeling right now, or any concerns you may have about the present moment and and where this may bring us. Well, on a scale of one to 10, I'm at a five. Okay. That's lower than I would have thought. And the reason for that is that um, the movement at the moment is spurred by a particular set of incidences. I'm afraid that when people go back to their lives, they will forget the movement. And if they Mm. don't continue to make movement, if they don't continue to remember the movement and agitate in ways that makes the system uncomfortable, then the movement won't continue. Right. So I'm I'm halfway hopeful, but um, not entirely. 
there is some historical precedent for, I mean, if we look at the civil rights movement itself, I think it was easy for white Americans to see these scenes from the South, um, attack dogs and, and fire hoses and, and, and real brutality and viciousness and say, I'm not for that. But when Dr. King and some of the other leaders of the civil rights movement started moving into calls for economic justice and sort of, frankly, asking people to give up some of their own privilege, some of the support plummeted. And I'm wondering if that's a bit of what you're talking about when you have some concern about how this will move forward. Well, yes, I, I wouldn't exactly say that it was easy. During <laughs> okay, fair point. Or right, some myths either. Um, and I would also say that if one looks at those movements, it was uh, uh, white kids who were actually on the opposite side of the movement. Yes. Um, and so that for me now is a major change. But I would also say that there were some um, white people who were involved who, after King died, essentially, they gave up the movement. They went to attend to their mortgages and their lives, and so they no longer were interested in what was happening uh, with respect to the civil rights movement. I worry that that will happen with um, the young people today, that is when school opens or their lives come back together in the ways that they're accustomed to, then maybe they won't attend to the movement anymore because it won't affect them personally. So that's why I'm a five instead of a 10. Okay. Is there anything that uh, I didn't bring up? Any thoughts you may have or, or areas you'd like to talk about? One of the things that white people who are trying to become uh, allies or collaborators against racism don't recognize is that they're coming up against a system that will reject them eventually for doing that. And so they have to be aware that it's a price, but they also need to try to begin to build coalitions among people like themselves, particularly white people like themselves, who understand the issues of racism and who are trying to overcome them. Um, it's, I know that they will be, they will make uh, coalitions with people of color because actually we like to find white people who are interested in overcoming these kinds of mm -hmm, issues. Mm -hmm. But that's not where the major education has to happen. White people have to begin to re-educate white people about the issues of race and racism and how they benefit from it in society. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us again, uh, Dr. Helms. We really appreciate you making the time for us and being a part of the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I love, love at the space where I could talk about some of these issues with you. Um, I hope that uh, our conversation will uh, be a benefit to people.